set of lecture four in the series The Orthodox Church in Alaska by Father Michael Alexa. The title of this lecture is Missionary Expansion Across Alaska, St. Innocent Vianimov and St. Yakov Nestevov. This is maybe the easiest talk to give because there's so much material. It's hard. The only hard part is to restrict myself to only two hours. To talk about these two saints of the church is a real joy. Because if we look back on the um, development of the Kodiak mission that came to Alaska with such high hopes of bringing the gospel and the Orthodox faith to Alaska, and then see how it wound up seven, and in the end only one. The school that they intended to found never really got off the ground. They built one church. The head of the mission drowned, together with two other missionaries, Deacon, Hira Deacon Stephen and Hira Makari. Another one, very early on, was martyred, St. Juvenali. And it doesn't take long before this mission dwindles. It doesn't exactly live up to the high expectations with which it was launched. And yet, the one humble monk, Herman, probably made the most significant single contribution to the foundations of orthodoxy in the New World of anyone. However, there were, there were no clergy here. St. Herman was a monastic who had never been ordained. And in 1818, when the Russian-American company applied for their new charter, and Tikhmenev wrote this whitewash job, the history of the Russian-American company, which exists in English. Some publisher, I think, in Canada uh, printed it some years ago. This history is not the history of the whole company or its whole uh, beginning-to-end story. It's just the first years, the first 20 years, the Baranov years. Between Klebnikov and Tikhmenev, we get a very positive view of both Baranov as a person and the company's activities as a corporation. And on the basis of this positive assessment, the Tsar awarded the company another 20-year charter. Which turns out to be good, because by this time Baranov has retired, that was 1818, and died at sea, in fact. He never made it back to Russia. He died on board ship in the Indian Ocean and was buried at sea. At least there are no monuments to Baranov anywhere, except Sitka. Five years ago in Sitka, some of the business community decided that Baranov Island should have a monument to Baranov. I don't know why. They erected a statue of him kind of sitting down and pondering we don't know what. Uh, rather dis disrespectfully, some other people deposited rows of toilet tissue by him. <laughs> Although at least he's fully clothed. And at the unveiling, uh, his nose was, the tip of his nose had been removed. Rather strange defacing of public property. But you see, this is the Clinket way of identifying a slave. And so the Clinkets were not too happy in southeast Alaska about having a monument to Alexander Baranov. And so they snipped off his nose, like in the nursery rhyme. Actually, there were um, file marks around his neck. They were probably trying for the whole head. But I suspect a cruiser car came by at an inopportune time, and so they just settled from Mr. Baranov's nose. It's been replaced, and he still sits there. To make matters worse, they had to remove the Clinket canoe, which sat in front of the Centennial Building, aside to make room for Mr. Baranov. So it was a kind of double insult to the Native community, who weren't consulted, of course, about the appropriateness of such a monument. A friend of mine pointed out that there are no monuments to Hernando Cortez in Mexico. But we've got one of Alexander Baranov. And nevertheless, he died at sea. There is no monument. There's no grave obelisk as there is for Shalikov in Irkutsk. There's no monument to him anywhere that I know, that I'm aware of in Russia. But with the closing of the Baranov era and the coming of Yanovsky, we have a new era dawning, an era in which the company will work to support the church. In fact, the new charter, the new incorporation, demands 
several new things of the company if they're going to retain their incorporation, their monopoly on the fur trade. Two things that are significant. One, children of mixed marriages are the responsibility of the company. The Russian-American company must educate children of mixed Siberian and native unions. They're responsible for educating them, and then those who are so educated are then responsible back again to the company for so many years of service, a kind of indentured relationship. That's actually a positive thing because it means now schools will be founded and supplied, the buildings will be built, the teachers will be paid out of the company profits. Secondly, and more importantly, the company is also responsible for the erection of and the support of churches, church buildings, and church clergy, and their transport to and from Russia. Without this support, the company doesn't get their charter, so of course they agree and they sign on the dotted line. Unalaska is the largest settlement in the Aleutian Islands, and there's a small chapel there, but no priest. Father Makari passed through in the late 1700s, but no one has been back since. So a call goes out, this is the early 1820s, Will some bishop from some diocese somewhere in Siberia please send the priest, recruit a volunteer for the frontier? And much to everyone's surprise, the valedictorian of his graduating class, Yuan Popov, volunteers. We have to talk about Yuan Popov. It's the same man as Venyaminov. Yuan is John. It was spelled that way. And his last name was Popov. We should talk about Russian last names briefly. The surnames were not use, used, they were not in, in use in Russia until the time of Peter the Great's westernization program. And then he decided we have to be modern, we have to do things the way the West does it. People need last names. Someday we're going to need a phone directory and what will we do without last names? So they assigned surnames to people by class, by economic and social caste, because everyone was also given a rank not just in the government, but in any profession. You could be butcher, baker, or candlestick maker, ranks one through 12. This is, by the way, why some of the Russian church has so many awards for its clergy, silver crosses, gold crosses, jeweled crosses, things to hang on this side and things to hang on that side. <laughs> Hats of different shapes and sizes. And it all comes from the Peter the Great giving these promotions, which at least in Russia meant a pay increase. In this country, all we get is hats. <laughs> But there was status to this because you then knew if you were in the middle management in your profession or one of the top guys. And that's why making Bishop Yoasaf a bishop put him at rank equal to a governor. And it would have been a, a major improvement of situation in Kodiak if Bishop Yoasaf of Kodiak had arrived at his see. Uh, that didn't happen as we know. But it's this ranking and then these last names. Clergy were assigned the last names of major feast days. You see? So you have somebody whose last name is Rojestvensky. It means Christmas. You have somebody named John Christmas. But it's obvious that at the time of the last names, when they were assigned, uh, this man was, was from a clerical background. So Voznesensky, same thing, Ascension. And, so, uh, and Voskresensky, Pascha, re Resurrection. You, so you could tell the higher ranking clergy got sort of first, pi first picks of major feasts. Then for some reason, they ran out of major feasts and there were too many names left over, so the middle management clergy got the names of birthstones. So we have the equivalent of pearl and ruby and uh, aquamarine, and these are also clergy names. And then those were all left over, the readers and the subdeacons and you know, people of low rank in the, in the hierarchy of the church, got Popov. <laughs> so Ioan Popov, in the seminary was probably the single most common name. There were like a dozen of them. Because anybody from the lower ranks of the clergy or descended therefrom, and the last names had only been handed out in, that, in the same century, earlier in the 18th century. There were so many Yuan Popovs. Now suddenly you have a valedictorian, the head of his class, who's got this most common name of all possible names. So they decided to award him not only whatever blue ribbons or gold medals were he, quali he qualified for academically, but to change his name which was no big thing because no one was particularly attached to their last name, but they'd just been handed out two generations before. The recently deceased bishop of Irkutsk was Benjamin, Venyamin. And so it's easy to remember then how Yuan Popov became Yuan Venyaminov. 
He was given, and sometimes he even wrote his name and was known as Popov Dash Venyaminov. But Yuan Popov is, you know, like I said, such a common name. They tried to distinguish him. And this Yuan Venyaminov was d destined, they hoped, for a scholarship to go to the St. Petersburg Theological Academy. The hope was that he would go as their top student to Europe and study for basically his doctorate and come back and probably serve either as a major cleric in the diocese of Irkutsk or uh, possibly teach in the theological faculty. He married soon after graduation, and when the word came, went out that they needed a priest for Alaska, he volunteered. The bishop did his best to dissuade him. Not you. You know, there are lots of other Yuan Popovs we'd be glad to send over there, but not you. For you, we had all these hopes. Why Alaska? Why you to this frontier, to this end of nowhere? But you know, Irkutsk was close to Kiakta, where the fur trade with China uh, was engineered. There was this one trading post in all of Russia where legally Russians could trade with the Chinese, and this is where the Alaskan furs were brought overland to Irkutsk and then south to Kiakta and across the border, and this is where the center of commerce was. So all the promyshleniki for nearly a hundred years had been bringing their goods through Irkutsk. And you, could, you couldn't sit around in a town square, a hotel, or a tavern in Irkutsk and not hear the stories from this exciting wild east. We had the wild west, they had the wild east. And the, and the similarities we've already pointed out. So this man had heard these stories. He'd grown up in Irkutsk. His father died, at the, I think, when he was four. He was raised by his uncle, who was the church starosta or sexton. And he'd gone into seminary, done very well, and now all his life, you see, he'd wanted to see this country, the end of the empire, the far edge of the world. And with great reluctance, actually, both the bishop and his wife agreed. His wife, Catherine, they had a young daughter, Anna, already. And his mother-in-law joined the entourage because she had no one else to live with. This whole group went off to the Siberian coast, to Okotsk, sailed from there to Petropavlovsk, sailed to Sitka, because that's where the boat was going. It missed on Alaska that year. And the following spring, in 1824, he arrived in Alaska, having visited the cap colonial capital, which was only about tw 20 years old. There wasn't much to Sitka yet in those days. And he arrived in Alaska, already having begun his study of the Unangan language. Because remember, Sitka was mostly an Aleut city. And he'd already met native Alaskans there, not just Klingets, but Aleuts as well. So he, he arrived already intent on learning this language and developing a writing system and orthography for it. He spent years doing this with the assistance of an Aleut chief whose name is Ivan Pankov. Pankov's an interesting character. Every book that Ganyaminov published, he gave credit to this Aleut man. We don't believe that he was of mixed ancestry, but he probably had a promyshlenic godfather. Dr. Lydia Black in Fairbanks posits that he probably went to Russia and spent some time in Russia itself because he was so perfectly fluent in Russian. But he was even more proficient in his own native language, in Unangan. And everything that Venyaminov translated, he had Pankov proofread so that they were, they were quite sure that it was intelligible and understandable and well-spelled, proofread and all the rest. And it took them 10 years but they created an Aleut grammar, an Aleut uh, primer for teaching people how to read, and they translated the Gospel of Matthew into Unangan. And they sent all these translations off to Europe to be published. Well, a, a few notes here. The Unangan language has sounds that don't exist in Russian. And St. Innocent, with a seminary, which is the equivalent of a high school diploma, accurately heard these sounds and did his best to write them down. For example, we have this sound in English. It's not the same as this and this. Because it's, this is one phoneme. It comes out your nose when you say NG properly in English. But a Russian will say English. English. They will say sing and ring instead of ring and sing. But Venyaminov heard this unusual sound, the NG, and the Russian letter for N looks like our capital H, and the letter G looks like a, something like a backward seven. Those are the Russian letters. So when it was 
appropriate to write this, Venyaminov invented the letter NG. In other words, his Unangan, and you can't even say Unangan without this letter, his Unangan translations not only were phonetically accurate, but they required special letters. You can imagine what it was like to be the printer who got the contract to publish the Aleut Gospel. It was not only a language no one had ever seen before, but it had all these special letters with little marks and squiggly lines over it because St. Innocent wanted to mark the, not only where the stress was, but variations in the tone or stress or pronunciation of the letter, much more accurately than we do in Russian or in English, actually. Well, it was quite a project, of course. The company was paying for it. It took over three years for the manuscripts to reach St. Petersburg, for the books to be printed, and then for all of it to come back. So it was 1834, 10 years almost exactly, from the time he arrived to the time the books were ready. So he could actually start his school. And he started the school in 1828, everything in manuscript form, but they were waiting for real textbooks so they could get serious about the teaching of the scriptures and also the uh, teaching of the Aleut language. The books came back with so many mistakes, so many typographical errors, that St. Innocent and Ivan Pankov both considered the books useless because almost every word was misspelled. You can imagine how frustrating that was after putting 10 years into this project. So it was at this point that Yohan Popov Venyaminov requested permission after 10 years in the colony. It's time for a sabbatical leave. They asked permission for his wife and children, by now there were four of them, to return to Irkutsk, where three of the kids had never even seen their relatives or visited their native country, while Father John took a boat south to Australia, and then eastward to, the, to Cape Horn of Africa, and then to the Azores, and to England, and to Denmark, and finally into the Baltic, where he had never been before in his life. This is a Siberian boy. To sail to the printer, the print shop in St. Petersburg, and supervise the publication of his Aleut translations himself. So this is like a, a seven-month sea voyage, nearly halfway, more than halfway around the world, while his wife and kids headed off in another direction, overland to Irkutsk. By the time he arrived in 1840 in Irkutsk, word had reached the capital city that his wife had died in, in Irkutsk, in Siberia. The funeral, the burial, had happened months before. It wasn't a matter of getting on a jet and flying out there right away. But he knew his four children, young pre-adolescent kids and one teenager, were there alone with some relatives. I mean, they weren't completely out on the street. But his immediate impulse was to drop everything, forget the translations, and go to be with his kids. Tsar Nicholas I, on the other hand, heard that this famous Alaskan missionary was in town. Venyaminov had not only written these Aleut texts, but he had, he had compiled what he humbly enough called Notes on the Unalaska District, three volumes of a study of the flora, the fauna, the meteorology, the ethnic customs. It was a kind of encyclopedia of the Aleutian Islands, Trans written, of course, in Russian and translated later into German. He received recognition as a scholar and a scientist from Western European schools and, and scientific academies later on in his life for this work. And the Tsar had heard that this famous missionary priest was in town. Bring him to the Winter Palace. I want to meet this guy. And Nicholas I interviewed him and was fascinated with all his tales of an end of the empire the Tsar himself would probably certainly never see. And expressed his condolences at the news of his wife's death. Father John said, yes, I intend to leave the capital soon and go back to be reunited to my children and take care of them. The Tsar said, please reconsider. We need men like you in Alaska. So I would hope that you would consider perhaps taking monastic vows because you could be the bishop. You should be the bishop of this diocese of Alaska. And I will personally scholarship your children to the best schools for which they qualify. Don't worry about your kids. It's time for them to be enrolled in schools here. And I'll take care of them pretty much out of my own imperial pocket. And you go back to Alaska and consider going back as Bishop of Alaska. We'll talk to the Holy Synod about that matter. So St. Innocent went off to Kiev, to Pechersky Lavra, the oldest, most venerable monastic community in Russia, and then to St. Sergius, 
Holy Trinity Lavra near Moscow and prayed about this and accepted with, I would think, some reluctance to become a monk. And at that point, he was given the name Innocent since there was already Saint Innocent of Irkutsk, his hometown. Well, he was really from Anginskoye, but it's not very far from there. And Irkutsk is the place where he went to seminary and where his children were and where his wife had already been buried. So as this Siberian, of course, he was logically given the name Innocent in Ikenti. The Holy Synod approved the Tsar's proposal that he be made bishop. He was given the title of Bishop of New Archangelsk, which is Sitka, New Archangel. And crossing over land, he was reunited with his children and his family in Irkutsk. He prayed at his wife's grave and continued on to Sitka. Sitka was already in the process of building him a house. And if you go to Sitka, it's very important to visit what's called the Russian Bishop's House. It's a rather large building. It's two stories high and takes up a city block. But it wasn't only a mansion for an important ecclesial figure. It was designed to be the first orthodox theological seminary in the New World. The whole first floor was dormitory and classroom space for students who would attend what was called the all-colonial school. St. Innocent had started a school at Unalaska, elementary up to middle school level. You could say kindergarten to eighth grade or so. The all-colonial school was intended to give educational possibilities to students from we would, what we would consider senior high and junior college level, six-year program. Native Alaskans were taught in their own languages, or at least given classes in those languages in every level. And the classes were not only theological, it wasn't only a theological school, <clears throat> it included classes in medicine, preparing people to be what would be the equivalent of health aides or paramedics today, navigators for the company ships, cartographers, much of Alaska was not yet mapped, as well as singers, choir directors, deacons and priests for the Alaskan mission. All of this was going on in the, in the, on the first floor while the bishop lived upstairs. And half of his uh, apartments were not his own living quarters. After all, there was a chapel there, a chapel dedicated to the Annunciation of the Theotokos, and that staircase so that the students, especially those the theological students, would go up and down the steps without going through the bishop's apartment. It's designed that way. It's all deliberate. So the, th the first theological school in America opened in 1844 in Sitka, while St. Innocent, in the adjoining rooms, upstairs rooms, designed St. Michael's Cathedral. He not only designed the cathedral, he built the clock for the clock tower himself. His uncle, when he was a little boy, showed him how to the inner workings of watches. And he used to make watches and give them as gifts to his friends in grade school and seminary. And now he had the chance to build the biggest clock of his life, just a bigger replica of the same kind of thing, a clock that kept pretty good time, we're told, until the 1960s when the whole cathedral burned. The artwork for the cathedral was sent from Russia, and the Russian-American company itself and their employees, by personal donation and collective subscription, furnished the cathedral with its art. The original mitre given to St. Innocent at his consecration to the Episcopate in Kazan Cathedral in St. Petersburg is in Sitka, the mother of Pearl Cross, with which he gave his blessings those years in Sitka, is still in the Sitka Cathedral, as well as his personal Bibles, both in Russian and in Aleut. But while he was in Sitka, he started learning Klinkit, a nearly impossible task by most, by, by most accounts. I have friends who have been studying Klinkit for 20 years and still have to check every sentence with their Klinkit spouses to make sure they didn't say something horribly wrong. <laughs> Klinkit is like Navajo. You know, they use Navajo in the um, Second World War as a code that the Germans and Japanese could never crack because it's such a difficult and grammatically impossible language. So Klinkit is in that same family, distant relative. You remember we pointed it out on the map. <coughs> and St. Innocent spoke Klinkit. He preached in Klinkit and spent four years evangelizing the Klinkit people. It's important, therefore, to say that he's not only the enlightener of the Aleuts, he's also the enlightener of the Klinkits. And in 1828, before he even went to either of the, uh, before he really settled down in, on Alaska, he visited Bristol Bay. There was a trading post at, on the Nushigak River here, and there in the river he baptized the first Yupik Eskimo converts. So St. Innocent is the first to visit the Yupik Eskimo and baptize them. The first, not the first priest, but the first successful missionary among the Klingets. And, of course, the enlightener of the Aleuts, not only by confirming them in the Orthodox faith, but by opening schools for them. Yaakov Netzvetov, a protege of his who finished seminary 
1826, just two years after Venyaminov. So there might have been a time when they, were even, they even knew each other there in Siberia. Came with his Russian matushka, Anna Semyonov, to Atka in the Aleutian chain. It's this last island out here on Alaska's here. They're not that far apart on our map. It's only a few hundred miles. But there's a dialectical shift from the Fox Islands to the Rat Islands. All of these groups of islands have animal names, depending on the, the animals that the Russians spotted first when they landed. So Atka is a small town now, but it was a major trading center in the time of St. Yaakov. And he was given not only Atka, but all the rest of the Aleutian Islands and the Kuriles. He opened, he opened a school at Atka using the Venyaminov books and supplied the Venyaminov Pankov gospel with Atkin footnotes so that even though there was a difference in language between the two regions, as he put it, we hope that eventually our people will all learn the same language because he supplied the Unalaskan, the Fox Island translation with Atkin footnotes. So wherever the text differed significantly and an Atkin might not have understood exactly what was meant, there was a footnote there to give the local variant. St. Yaakov, we believe, also translated the Gospels of Mark, Luke, and John and the Acts of the Apostles into Unangan in his spare time, <laughs> spending 20 years at Atka. His Russian wife got sick after three years of marriage, was sent to Sitka, where she died and was buried. So as a bachelor, alone, Father Yaakov Nesvetov labored most of his life, first in the Aleutian Islands. And then his good buddy and friend, St. Innocent, said to him, I need a priest for the Yukon Delta. It's time we sent a, a missionary to the Eskimo people. I was there once myself about 20 years ago at the Nushigak. But we need someone to set up a, a parish on the, in the Yukon, on the lower Yukon River. And you're the best guy I've got. Now, meanwhile, Netsvetov, after putting in 20 years in the Aleutian Islands, had petitioned for retirement. <laughs> he wasn't that old. He was, close, he, was, he was pushing 50, but not quite. But he had put in 20 years in a very difficult area, and he had been alone. His house even burned down once in Atka. I mean, this poor man in, had a horrible time out there. It was his home region. It was with his own people, but he had a tremendously large territory to cover. He did a lot of educating, a lot of translating. His gospels never got published but they circulated in manuscript form among Unangan people for a hundred years. St. Innocent said, no, 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 you can't retire. We need men like you. This sounds familiar. <laughs> and, and I think you should go into this region. So Nesvetov set up his missionary headquarters at the town that is now inappropriately called Russian Mission. I say inappropriately because there were almost never any Russians there. The trading post was operated by Aleuts. The church was built by Aleuts. And, although, and the people who worshipped there were Aleuts and Yupiks. There was once, for a few years, Father Hilarion from Russia was there for three years. And on this basis, the town is named Russian Mission. But I've always told people there that, that their village should be named Aleut Mission. For Zinyakov Nesvetov spent another 18 years on the Yukon Delta. And not only spent time sitting in that one village, but had to travel out to St. Michael's up here on the coastline just to pick up his mail. It only came once a year. And he had to go to St. Michael's down the Yukon River and out the mouth and out across the, out into the Bering Sea and wait for the once a year supply ship where the trade goods were delivered and the new furs taken out and all correspondence arrived. So every August or the early September, he'd go down the Yukon River in a kayak, paddle out to St. Michael's with a delegation from his home village and wait for the ship and hope that it would come early enough so they could get home before the river froze. One year they didn't make it. As they were coming up the Yukon River with this year's food supplies, sacks of flour and sugar and such, all his ecclesiastical supplies, his candles and everything else, the river froze up right in front of him and he had to unload and go send people on foot ahead. They came back with dog sleds and they ferried everything back to Russian mission. When you read stories like this, you think, and we complain when the mail is a couple days late. This message is continued on side two. When you read stories like this, you think, and we complain when the mail is a couple days late. 
St. Yaakov lived for seven years on the Yukon River without a church. The company gave him a tent to put up. He calls it the field church, but it's a tent. Anyone who lives in Alaska can appreciate what that means, especially through the winter. And after, uh, after six or seven years there, St. Yaakov is in bed approximately one-third of the time. He can hardly stand up. He has either rheumatism or arthritis. It's never diagnosed because there are no doctors there. He has no clinic to turn to, no one to whom even to write a complaint. After all, it's going to be six more months till the mail leaves and another year before you get a reply. So keeping him in mind, you see, any time we feel a little bit uncomfortable, the furnace goes out, you know, and it's cold in church, and we say, well, we can't go because we might all get sick. Just think of St. Yaakov standing in his tent in the middle of February. What's extraordinary about St. Yaakov's life is that it was physically demanding. He died at the age of 60, and I think he was simply completely exhausted. And many years, we have his diaries. We have his diaries for almost every year he was a priest. This is what's extraordinary, you see. <laughs> they took writing very seriously, and they kept very good records, those missionaries. Every day there's a notation about the weather to start with, how cold it is or how wet or how whatever. And then I had to bury so-and-so, or so-and-so was very sick, I had to take them communion, or so-and-so had gave birth to a child, I visited the house. Tomorrow is the baptism of such and such. There's some kind of activity, some kind of churchly activity almost every day. It's not the personal reminiscences and, and, and memoirs. It's what they did as pastors. But we, have, but we have for St. Yaakov nearly all his Atkin years, 20 years, and we have nearly all of his, all 18 years of his Yukon career as well. And some of it is so extraordinary. I already told you about his, his freeze-up the time when the boats got uh, lo locked in the ice on the Yukon River, just trying to bring their supplies home. Um, maybe it's not even necessary. Well, yes, I think it is. You should re I read to you a little bit of St. Herman. Tonight I have to read you a little bit of St. Yaakov. It's 1853. He's been on the Yukon uh, 11 years. And there are people upriver upriver from him in this pinkish area. It's called Inkalik here. In this Inkalik area. There are people who have heard about him downriver, this strange man from far away, who has learned to speak with the Yupiks and is telling them his stories. They want to hear his stories. Pramish uh, Lennox, but now of Aleut descent, have penetrated the interior of Alaska and already intermarried with native Alaskan, in this case, Athabascan women. They're the interpreters, the built-in liaisons between the missionary and the local people. And hospitality is certainly extended. So the Indian people from the Inkalik region here, Shagalok, Holy Cross, and Anvik are in this region. They actually send boats down to Nitzvetov and they say, you've been promising to come for all these years. We want you now. No more excuses. The ice has left the Yukon. It's late May, 1853, and so he's persuaded by this um, delegation to proceed upriver. 1853, May 13th. Today, the Shagaluk chief, Alexander Katilnyuk, arrived here in a baidara, a large open skin boat. He asked when I plan to come at last, this season, to travel along the Shagaluk River to visit the Kolchani, this is the tribe that lives there, who live in the upper reaches of this river. That is, the villages whose inhabitants come down along the Shagaluk River and are waiting for me in Shagaluk. Some of them had visited me at Russian Mission last May and accepted baptism. When I decided to travel there, the chief asked if I would proceed without him and depend on locally available help for travel to the settlement along the upper Shagaluk River. He said I can count on his son to accompany me to Kolchani territory. I need him as a guide and interpreter. His son also helped me in this capacity during my first trip. May 15th, having prayed to the Lord God with, for his aid and blessing, we left Ikogamut, this is the Yupik name for what is called Russian mission today, about noon, traveling in two, three hatched by darkas, so kayaks with three men in each, 
going upstream along the Yukon River. Five days later, May 20th. Though it was my plan to visit all the Kochani settlements, I have learned that on their own initiative, the Kochani have gathered at the lowest village to meet me. Thus I settled down to await them here. In the meantime, I was busy with those who converted in 1851, but had, been, had not been baptized because of the subsistence activities. In the morning, I preached the word of God, and then according to their faith and expressed desire, I baptized nine men and six women. Then I waited for the arrival of the people from upriver. In the evening they came in birch bark canoes, large wooden boats and one by Dara, an open skin boat, probably even with a sail. I counted up to 100 such vessels as they converged on the Shagaluk River. This is a scene I'd love to see Hollywood do, you see. This little Aleut priest on the shore and all these people coming in their birch bark canoes and kayaks and baidara to hear, him, hear his stories. The Shigaluk River was completely covered with canoes and boats. May 21, beginning in the morning upon my invitation, all the Kulchani and Inkalik, another tribe, from the Yukon and the local, the local people gathered at my place and I preached the word of God concluding at noon. Now, beginning in the morning, this is, we have to refer to the context here, it's May 21st, beginning in the morning. The sun comes up at four o'clock. He may well have begun preaching on our clocks by six or seven in the morning, so he, he tells a lot of stories, five hours worth. That's my, because that's what the morning would be. It would be quite early that time of year. It's only a month before the equinox, or the solstice, rather. Uh, everyone listened to the preaching with attention and without discussion or dissent. And in the end, they all expressed faith and their wish to accept holy baptism. Both the Kolchani and the Inkalik, parentheses, formerly traditional enemies. I made a count by families and kin groups, and then in the afternoon I began the baptismal service. First I baptized together 50 Kolchani and Inkalit men, the latter from the Yukon and the Inoko rivers. It was already evening when I completed this service. Already evening, May 21st, midnight. <laughs> it's further north than here too, besides. May 22nd. I began baptizing 72 women in the morning. In the afternoon, I baptized 54 teenagers of the children of the parents who had already recently converted. This rite was completed by evening, a total of 126 persons, 33 boys, 93 women and girls. This, this part is, I always love this line. From this activity, I became dreadfully tired. <laughs> and felt pain from standing so long. However, the spiritual joy at the sight of so many souls joined to the flock of the Christian church compensated for everything. And the bodily weaknesses disappeared. That night, I made a written record of the day's events. May 23rd. Now he doesn't say in the morning. He says, before noon, <laughs> I again performed baptism for the smaller children and infants of the newly baptized parents and chrismated the family of Okolchani, wife and daughter, who had been baptized by Simeon Lukin in 1846. That's seven years before. This family waited seven years to be chrismated. They had been baptized by an Aleut trader on the Kuskokwim River. But he, of course, didn't chrismate anyone. So this family had, the, the, the family had come from the Trotpolik Aniak area, Komokovsky Redut was the name of the place where Simeon Lukin's trading post was, and traveled to Shigaluk. Here, it's at least 100 miles across the portage first and then probably along the river to be chrismated by Father Yaakov because the word was out. Everybody's gathered at Shigaluk. That's where the big baptism's going on. And so these people showed up and got chrismated that day after seven years. 
36 more were added to the Church of Christ today. May 24th, all the newly baptized, all that are here present, attended and prayed. And this is my favorite line in 40 years of diaries. One must imagine the joy in my heart at the sight of so many souls gathered in one place, more than 300 praying to God, people of various tribes, formerly hostile to each other, enemies, now united as the flock of Christ's church, offering prayers to the true God. After the service, I offered a sermon to them as to the reborn children, first declaring to them why I had held such a communal prayer, that is explaining that today is Sunday. Then I taught them Christian commandments about prayer, Christian love, and Christian virtues, but most of all, about human kindness. It's not exactly human kindness, you know, it, it's, it's like the lex philanthropia in Greek, about peaceful and cordial coexistence between all people. When I finished writing, I called the people together before me and gave out their certificates of baptism. He recorded all these names in the Russian and in their own languages and gave them all. They have to have papers or this didn't happen, right? <laughs> he had to give them all baptism certificates, which of course no, not a single person probably in the of crowd of 300 could possibly read. But anyway, to have it verified that they were baptized Orthodox Christians. Then I preached another sermon for their instruction. Thus, I finished my work with them about 4 p.m. and began to prepare for my departure. I left at 5 p.m. Traveling with the current, we moved very fast, and by 10 p.m. we reached the village where Alexander Katilnyuk is chief. His son helped me very much yesterday, doing all my contacts with the people who were being baptized, translating whatever I said for both the Kolchani and the Ingalik, and for this I am very grateful. Now, this, these Aleut Promishleniks have simply carried on the same missionary work as the Promishleniki did in, in Siberia and in the Aleutian Islands. They're already there, they've already intermarried, they already speak the languages, and they are the interpreters for the priests. But let's think about what this incident, 1853, on the Yukon River really means. The modern stereotype, and it's unfortunately becoming even stronger, is that the missionaries, and maybe especially somehow the Russian missionaries, came and imposed their faith on the people, offering to them, we don't know what, economic, social, or political advantages if they accepted Christianity. There was no, there was no social advantage to becoming Christian that afternoon in Shagalok. There were no economic advantages. There was no additional political uh, benefit. There wasn't to the Aleuts, by the way, either. Down in Kodiak, 60 years earlier, they had to risk their lives to sneak into the house to visit their, the monks. And while they took the oath of allegiance and were hoping that that would provide them with certain civil liberties or civil rights, uh, it was a big risk to all of them and, and led to the arrest of the monks and their house arrest for over a year at the hands of Alexander Baranov. The notion that, in other words, there's some kind of coercion going on here is completely absent from this account of the baptism of the Inkalik and Kolchani at Shagaluk in 1853. And by the way, the, those people, the, the people who are called Kolchani are the people who, who reside in Talaida and Nikolai they're labeled Upper Kuskokwim here on this map, near the city, well, the nearest jet port is in McGrath. And those are two solid Orthodox communities to this day. These are the people that St. Yaakov baptized. They didn't come from this region. They came from the Upper Kuskokwim, and they made a long journey to get to Shagaluk in order to be baptized. The word had spread throughout the interior that the, the missionary, the man with the stories, was coming to Shagaluk, and they came there to hear him, and they freely accepted baptism. When he says, I became dreadfully tired, we all laughed. 
you, you could be b very tired, of course, baptizing 300 mostly adults in a river, right? Uh, and standing in that river nearly all day and doing it all by threefold immersion and so forth, because you can tell everything Father Nesvetov did was according to the rubrics. He did things properly, he kept proper records, and we have the journal to prove it, because every day he writes what he did. We wouldn't have this, this is directly from his journals one of the longer entries, because it was a rather busy day. You read in his diaries, too, that by late spring, nearly every year, he's quite sick and bedridden. And one of the most extraordinary things about St. Yaakov is that he pulls himself out of bed by Tuesday or Wednesday of Holy Week and begins in his tent for the first seven years again to celebrate Holy Week services. And you know, every year, and in my first book, I cite these passages. Every year, St. Yaakov is so joyful at Pascha. No matter how sick he was, no matter how difficult the circumstances are, it's Paschal joy that shines through every page of his experience, even in the harsh uh, conditions of the Yukon mission. Then he keeps begging for help. He gives up asking for retirement. There's no hope for that. But he wants help. He has this huge territory. In fact, he covers the areas here that are pink and most of and the upper half of the blue area. He travels by kayak up and down both the Kuskokwim and Yukon rivers. And remember, just to get his mail and supplies, he had to go out here on the Bering Sea besides. He keeps asking for assistance. Unfortunately, there aren't many people in these years, 1850, 1860, who want to go to the Alaskan frontier. But there is the possibility of sending people, relatively undesirables, to get them out of your diocese. And this is the kind of help that Father Yaakov gets. He gets one monk and then another, who are quite literally crazy. One of them is convinced that all his food is poisoned, and that Father Yaakov is behind it. And he's, he's very quickly, he's there for a few months. He's there for one year until the next boat comes and then they take him away. And a year later they send him somebody else who's probably worse. Because he not only says that, uh, uh, he, makes, he, makes, he makes really relatively unreasonable and, and preposterous charges against Father Yaakov and his uh, assistant Constantine Lukin. Lukin is the son of the traitor the Aleut trader operating the trading post on the Kuskokwim, and Constantine Lukin as subdeacon is Father Yaakov's right-hand man. Those of you who live in Alaska must deal with agencies or bureaucracies or higher authorities of any sort in the lower 48 will appreciate this story of St. Yaakov's difficulties during this time. It's about 1856, and they're running out of food. March or April of that year. I think it's middle of March. The fish supply has been exhausted, and for some reason, there's no meat. People can't even catch a rabbit. From a Yupik point of view, the animals are not cooperating. There's no food in the community. People are hungry, and starvation is a real possibility. And St. Yaakov notes this in his diary. Then, uh, a few days later, he mentions it again. Our food supply is dangerously low. Some families have no food at all. I'm sharing with them whatever I have, but there's very little left. I have sent Subdeacon Constantine out hunting, hoping that he'll find something. Second day, Constantine's still gone. Food supply's nearly exhausted. We pray to God that we'll, he'll return with some relief. Third day, no sign of Deacon, Subdeacon Constantine. Our food nearly exhausted. We'll go to bed hungry tonight. Fourth day, Thanks be to God, Constantine has re returned with four caribou. We'll have enough food until the spring fish begin to come. Now, these diaries were not just kept for personal reminiscences. They were official reports, and very often there's more than one copy. The, the missionary would not only keep one, but make a copy at the end of the year. It would be sealed and bound, tied with ribbons, and sent to the diocesan bishop so that when the mail ship went out, destined for Sitka, the capital, the bishop would then receive a bound volume of all the missionaries' activities day by day for the entire year. In 1860, a new bishop was assigned to Sitka. 
Bishop Peter. He came straight from St. Petersburg. He'd never been in the bush at all. He had no idea what conditions on the Yukon were. And he went through St. Yaakov's journal with a pencil. The pencil marks are still there in the margins. So you can read not only St. Yaakov's words, but Bishop Peter's comments. So you can get a lot of check marks, right, right, good, good, that kind of thing. Then you come to this whole incident I've just described. No meat, no food, nothing to eat, starvation. And then, thanks be to God, Constantine has returned with four caribou. And Bishop Peter writes in the margin, meat during Lent? <laughs> Context. There was no way the bishop could understand the context in which St. Yaakov was operating. And so on a kind of fundamentalist uh, approach, how could he do such a thing? But obviously, we have this, I mentioned those of you who deal with out-of-state authorities who don't know conditions in Alaska, we're up against this all the time, but I think this is probably the first instance we can document, uh, you know, where this kind of misunderstanding, people not knowing what it's like in the, Alaska, in the Alaskan situation and making a, a harsh judgment where actually they should be giving thanks. St. Yaakov survived all that, but this um, second crazy assistant not only uh, didn't trust St. Yaakov, but he made charges against him, that, which he filed officially with the bishop in Sitka the next time the mailboat went out, saying that St. Yaakov and his subdeacon Constantine were terrorizing the rivers upriver and committing mass murder. And it's so preposterous that no one in their right mind would believe it, but this is Bishop Peter again. So if he's worried about meat during Lent, these new, these new accusations are something serious, and he asks both uh, the, the monk and Father Yaakov to come to Sitka to get to the bottom of this, probably not even realizing what an arduous journey that's going to be. The monk then dies, so there's no one to participate on that side. But St. Yaakov, in in obedience to these orders, shuts down his mission, this is 1860, on the Yukon River and departs for St. Michael's, gets on the ship and sails with Constantine Lukin, still in his company, to Sitka. He's there exonerated of all the charges. And two years later, as dean of St. Michael's Cathedral, falls asleep in the Lord. We don't know where he's buried. He had no children and his wife had died nearly 40 years earlier. He found her grave. It's very touching. While he was there as the priest in Sitka, 58 years old, he wasn't very old, but I believe that the whole life of sacrifice had simply exhausted him. Um, he found his wife's grave and had a beautiful memorial stone placed over it. It's still there in the forest near what is now the bishop's residence, out in the forest. Uh, in, in the trees where she's buried, there's a stone that says, Here lies Anna Semyonova Netsvetova, wife of Archpriest Yaakov Netsvetov, who was born in Irkutsk in such and such a year, and here awaits the resurrection on the last day. Now, the only person who could have possibly done that, since she was a Russian, would have been her own husband. So for her, there's a memorial. When he died, there was probably a wooden cross that long ago deteriorated. People in Sitka didn't know who this guy was. They didn't know he'd spent these 20 years as a heroic missionary in the uh, Aleutian Islands. They had no idea his trials and tribulations among the Yupiks and the Indians of the interior. And so he died as this old priest that came from we don't quite know where, and was buried, it's recorded, at the doors of the Clinket Church. But the Clinket Church was torn down more than 100 years ago. So while we have an idea within 50 yards where St. Yaakov is buried, we have no definite indication of where his relics lie. He was canonized uh, recently in ceremonies in Anchorage uh, without, a relic, without relics, with a large, beautiful icon uh, carried in procession around the church. And the, the basis for his canonization, of course, is his, his heroic his really heroic apostolic labors. Now we have to resume St. Innocent. 
We left him as Bishop of Sitka and a six-year educational plan. He was doing such a good job in Sitka. They made him Archbishop. They made him Bishop of Alaska and Kamchatka, which like doubled his territory. And he moved the school from Sitka to Petropavlovsk, Kamchatsky, back to the Russian side of the Bering Straits. He was doing such a good job there, studying Kamchatl and expanding the school's activities, that they made him Archbishop, but of Yakutsk. Anyone here know where Yakutsk is? It's, it's in Siberia. If you play Risk, you know. You know the board. <laughs> it's, it's the interior of Siberia, north by several thousand miles from Irkutsk, in one of the coldest and most desolate regions of, of the planet. The winter temperatures are 50, 60, 70, even 100 degrees below zero. And in this climate, as archbishop of a huge territory, bigger than Alaska, he learned Yakut, translated the gospel into Yakut, and began founding parishes and churches among the Saha people of the Siberian north. And he was doing such a good job. In 1868, he was elected Metropolitan of Moscow. Now, this was really quite a shock to him. He was what? 71 years old, certainly eligible for retirement after the 50 years he had put in already on the missionary frontier. And to get a telegram in Yakutsk that you've been approved by the Holy Synod, elected to be Metropolitan of Moscow. He'd been there once, remember? He'd prayed there after his wife's death at the Holy Trinity St. Sergius Monastery, about 50 miles out of town. But Europe? He was a guy, he was the product of the frontier. He'd spent all his life in the boonies. And now they were picking him of all people to be metropolitan of the, of the ancient capital. He was simply astounded. And if you want, I'll read to you because it's to me the most beautiful, the most, one of the most beautiful passages in, um, in St. Innocent's life. I hope I can find it quickly because I, I forgot to mark it. Yes, when he was installed, page 140, his installation speech as Metropolitan of Moscow, you can see how completely flabbergasted and overwhelmed he is on this occasion. You know, this is in the Kremlin Cathedral of the Dromission. He's being enthroned as the Archbishop of the ancient capital of Russia, and he spent his whole life in Alaska and Siberia. He's born in Siberia. He speaks Klinkit, which isn't very useful now, Aleut and Yakut. And he has a high school diploma, after all. This is not bad for a kid from the boondocks, huh? And I didn't mention that in the 1820, no, 1840s, as, when 1830s, when he was still priest in Sitka, Fort Ross was sold to John Sutter in California. And he went down to California to kind of close down the chapel take the chalice and the gospel and the other ecclesiastical items north and where they, up north to Sitka, where they still are. And uh, he, vis he met, for the first time in his life, some Roman Catholic clergy. Having lived in the Russian Empire, and especially in, the, in Siberia, he'd never met anyone who wasn't Orthodox before, at least not, no one from another major world faith. So he writes, I met the first Roman Catholic priests I've ever, ever in my life. Padres, they are called. And I used my high school Latin to converse with them. Frankly, I took high school Latin too, but it would be useless to have tried to converse with anybody. America's Patria Nostra is all, but you know, I can remember a few lines, but not to carry on a conversation in Latin with Franciscan clergy who then offered him a tour of their missions in, Northern, in the Bay Area of California. We know he went to San Rafael. He visited the missions in Northern California, and he noticed they were having trouble getting musical instruments, so he built a couple organs for them. <laughs> We've never been able to find one of those organs, but they operated something like player pianos, where you put a scroll in and you pumped it, and, the, and it played. But he made two different kinds of scrolls, one with Gregorian chant and one, one with Russian folk music. 
And he laughed that if they put the wrong one in, they'd be having a very lively mass. <laughs> so here's the architect of St. Michael's Cathedral and the founder really of theological and one could even say secular education in Alaska. The founder of Alaskan ethnography. The founder of Alaskan biology because his books were about the flora and fauna of the Aleutian Islands. The first linguist and anthropologist in the history of Alaska. And now he's being enthroned as metropolitan of Moscow. Where that's all very nice and interesting, but it's not going to do him much good at the age of 71 and losing his eyesight to govern this, this diocese with the theological schools and the monasteries. Listen to what he says on that occasion, probably with the emperor sitting on the throne also in attendance. This lecture is continued on the next cassette.